0: ted audio collective
1: canva presents stories to keep you up at night it was an ordinary work day until
2: the singapore presentation is at 3 a.m the office was shocked (laughs) that's when we sleep maya made it less scary with canva I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime.
1: Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at Canva.com. Designed for work.
2: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive.
3: Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm me here.
0: And I'm Christina.
3: Welcome back, Christina. It's great to have you, Christina. <laughs>
0: Happy to be here. You
3: have been incredibly productive. I think you wrote an entire book <laughs> since we last spoke, no? <laughs> <laughs> Something
0: like that. I think the book came out since we last spoke. Oh,
1: so tell us, how is that experience of the book coming out? What's it been like?
0: It has been a whirlwind. You know, I had the great strategic decision to launch a book the week between the last week of the RC, the first year MBA course that I teach and that I am the course head for, and then the week of the final exam. So I thought, (laughs) you know, I'll just (laughs) slot in a launch of a book, (laughs) then I'll oversee a final exam, and then I'll grade the final and do all of that course wrap-up while on a five-week book tour. That sounds like a great plan. (laughs) Nice. Yeah,
3: so you look remarkably fresh and relaxed, (laughs) I have to say, given the circumstances.
0: Don't let my new concealer confuse you. That is entirely makeup and maybe a Zoom filter.
3: So, Christina, the name of the book is The
1: Portfolio Life. And so it would be great to Maybe spend the first segment talking about that.
0: I should be practiced enough to share those thoughts at
3: this point. (laughs) And Felix, what did you bring? I would like to talk about productivity and happiness, maybe related to Christina's productivity, (laughs) (laughs) maybe a little more general. We have recent data that are incredibly puzzling, at least to me. And so I thought, what better way to make sense of what we have learned in the last couple of weeks than to talk to my good friends, Christina and me here. Productivity and happiness. I think that's an Al Green song. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) No, I think it's love and happiness, but whatever. Yeah, close enough.
1: (laughs) Okay, Christina, The Portfolio Life. Tell us about this book and tell us what problem you think you're solving and how you want to solve it.
0: Sure. So... I will be a little bit facetious, but also not when I say I kind of wrote this book to explain to my mother my career and what I've been (laughs) Uh doing for the last 15 years. The subtitle is How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. I came up with this framework truly over the last 15 years in part to explain what I've been doing and in part to offer a way to... Think about a career and a life that is no longer linear. Mm -hmm. I'm an elder millennial for many of my generation, and certainly the Gen Z's coming up behind us. There's this bit of frustration when we hear career advice from our parents or even from Gen Xers who still have a mindset of pick a thing, work hard, be loyal to a company or at least to an industry. And it'll all pay off. You'll make mm-hmm. enough money to buy a house. You'll someday pay off your student loans. It all works out if you hustle hard enough. Mm-hmm. And I think many of us looked around and said, we're hustling, man, we're <laughs> working our tail off. But the loyalty within the company, not there. Certainly the linearity of the be able to get promoted, to be rewarded for that work within industries keeps not happening. Mm -hmm. And so I put together this framework that roughly addresses three ideas. One, you are more than any one job or opportunity. You're bigger than your work. Mm -hmm. Number two, diversification is how you are going to navigate change and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And number three, when, not if, when your life changes... You can rebalance your portfolio for your life just like you Mm -hmm. rebalance your financial portfolio. And so taking these ideas together, it's a way to reject this kind of work-life balance, this idea that they're in opposition to each other. Mm -hmm. Instead, think about work in the context of your life in the same way you would design a financial portfolio. So how are you allocating your time against work, family, Relationships, hobbies, health, free time, where the sum total is this time allocation.
1: So that sounds really interesting, Christina. I mean, the first part is about kind of not saying that you are just your work. I think I understand that part. And I think that can be very liberating and very powerful for many people. I'm curious about the second one, about Mm. this idea of diversification, because that's Mm -hmm. also in the title of the portfolio life. And by the way, of course, diversification as a finance prof is like music (laughs) to my ears. (laughs) How Predictable. Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But tell me more about what you mean by diversification and why diversification is the right frame for thinking about your life
3: it's
0: twofold one i think is this idea of multiple income streams where you're not ever wholly beholden to one job one boss one industry in large part because of this constant disruption i mm-hmm. came to this through a lens of a working artist a theater director a musician in the arts, you always have multiple income streams, and not just mm-hmm. your backup job as a waiter or a bartender, but you also are very open-minded about the gigs you take. Yeah. But also diversification from the point of view of your network and how you see yourself. So if you are very sort of linear in how you say, for example, I'm a journalist— I work in journalism, I am a journalist, that's how I pay my bills, that's how I see myself, and then journalism, as we've continued to see, is constantly facing layoffs and reorganizations and Mm -hmm. you can't quite get a leg up there, you're going to feel very frustrated. But if you are more open-minded and diversified as you think about both your network, your work, your income, you might say, you know what, I'm an investigator, I'm a storyteller, I'm a writer, I currently put those things to work through journalism, but there's a lot of other ways that I can build a life with those skills. And if I have other relationships, I might find myself doing content for a company or PR or teaching writing. There Mm -hmm. are lots of other ways to put that to work Uh that gives you the power back rather than constantly feel like you are at the whims of an industry.
3: Super interesting, Christina. There's a phrase that caught my attention early on in the book when you say we should have permission to step back from the cult of ambition. Mm -hmm. What did you have in mind?
0: I love how many people have caught on to that phrase because I am incredibly ambitious. I have nothing against ambition. I literally wrote a book while 3D printing a human (laughs) while making my second baby. So I am ambitious. What I mean by that. The cult of ambition is the mindset that every time you achieve something, the very next thought is, okay, what's next? Mm -hmm, (laughs) And that I constantly have to be making forward motion on this ambition the rat race. And that there's no freedom in those moments to say, you know what? I'm actually really happy with the place that I've achieved in maybe my career. And right now, my ambition is going to go... Orthogonally to my family, or my ambition is going to go to my health. Maybe this is an opportunity to get into mm-hmm, the best mm-hmm, shape of my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to allow myself the space to say, This is enough for the next chapter. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to think about growth or opportunity in other parts of my portfolio rather than constantly be saying, okay, what's next professionally? What's right. next that's going to be impressive yeah. Yeah. and financially rewarding?
3: So in a sense, it's more about this multidimensionality as opposed to there's something wrong with being ambitious. It's, you can be ambitious in many ways and having a portfolio life means that at various points in time, there's different things that get your attention. There's different things that you're working on.
0: Absolutely, which is why I use the phrase portfolio life, not portfolio career.
1: Mm -hmm. I think what I'm struggling a little bit with, Christina, is I get the latter version, which I think of as like temporal diversification. There'll be different times in your life when you'll specialize. Mm -hmm. That sounds totally right to me. You can work hard at certain times. You can think about being a good father or mother at different times. Or you can think at different times of your life about investing in yourself as opposed to other things. What I don't get quite as much is... The other type of diversification, which is you should take on different kinds of gigs. You should try to do different kinds of things with your career. And the reason I'm not Mm. as sure about that is because focus is what tends to deliver great rewards. We don't think about diversifying everything in life. Mm -hmm. Often, with spouses, they tend to react negatively if you think about diversifying (laughs) that part of your life. And that's because there are amazing rewards to specialization and focus. And in many careers, that's true. There's huge rewards from specialization. So I get the temporal version, but I'm not sure that I get it quite as much that somebody in their 30s should be going from different types of jobs to different types of jobs. Sure.
0: Let me give you an example. Yeah. There's a case study. There's a story in the book. Carla Stickler was a Broadway actress. She very successfully made her way up through the ranks up to the point where she was performing on Broadway in Wicked. As part of her work, she was an understudy for Elphaba, which is the Wicked Witch of the West. And as she got into her sort of mid-30s, she was feeling a little burnt out creatively. So she started picking up hobbies. She started learning how to throw pottery on a pottery wheel. Really got into that. Very rewarding as a way to kind of get her hands dirty. And she started to learn to code not because either of these might end up being a career for her, but simply because it gave her creativity and it gave her a new way of expressing herself. But when COVID hit and when Broadway shut down and the backstop for a lot of performers is bartending and serving at restaurants, and those also shut down, she had an opportunity to pivot she actually went out with her coding skills, which were not entirely that developed. She went out and said, hey, you know, I'm a junior developer and I'm open for work. And she landed a job at a tech company as sort of the person who sat between the engineering team and the customer success team, because it turns out, in addition to understanding how to write code, Carla knows how to talk to people. And that was incredibly valuable Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this world. And it gave her this ability to not be stuck, not be unemployed and sit on her hands. And it gave her a chance to try out this new direction. She loved it. She kept going. She got poached by another tech company less than a year in. Less than a year after that, she just got poached by Spotify. And she's finding this very fulfilling second chapter in her late 30s in an entirely different world. And what I love about Carla's story is not only is she really happy in this new world, but she didn't have to leave Broadway entirely behind. When Omicron hit, Broadway had just reopened, the wicked producers literally called Carla after having gone through the main cast, the backup cast, the swings, all of the understudies, and said, hey, can you come back and perform? And she's like, I live in Chicago now. I work at a tech company. And they're like, get on a plane to New York. We can put you in a rehearsal. And she flew back to New York. She had one rehearsal and ended up painting herself green and getting hooked into the harness and flying 40 feet above the air and singing this role. And then went off stage, flew home to her team and told them on Slack what she'd been up to that weekend. So it didn't require her to shut the door, but it gave her... That diversification, it gave her flexibility in these extreme moments of disruption where many of her colleagues who didn't have anything except performing were unemployed for 18 months.
1: That's a very inspiring story. And I take away from that, investing in skills mm-hmm. is like hugely important and having other options is hugely important. I think that's gotta be true. But I don't know how to generalize that example if I think about someone who is trying to rise up in a corporation. So is it that they should also be kind of developing a side hustle as a baker? (laughs) What I'm worried about is it can lead, I think, to a very rewarding situation Mm -hmm. and can have these insurance properties that you're describing, which is when the world falls apart, you got something. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the person who is ambitious, who wants to rise, Mm -hmm. will it get them there or will there be someone else who won't? And maybe what you're saying is, well, you shouldn't be worried that much about that because that's fine. But I'm just trying to understand if the focused effort will yield a better professional result. Now, you might say, who cares about professional results? Like, that's not what the game is about. I get that. But are you suggesting that it'll get you a better professional result?
0: No, I think there are two ways to think about this. One is that certainly a natural curiosity that you allow yourself to follow, whether it's monetized or not, by having things outside of your day job, keeps you curious makes you interesting. Totally agree. And more often than not, you're gonna find really random connections that might give you an insight Mm. or a relationship or an opportunity to bring in some outside learning. That's interesting. But more than that, you know, I think of the example of, do I want my neurosurgeon having a side hustle? Maybe not, but what I do want is my neurosurgeon to feel like in the moment where they are no longer feeling fulfilled by practicing surgery, that they don't operate one day more because they feel like they have nothing else to do with themselves. Mm-hmm. I want right. them to have a yeah. deep love of underwater basket weaving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that I totally buy that. They can say, that. you know what? I've got other things I can do. That's sort of the dual idea here.
3: Right. I totally buy that. That makes a ton of sense. I think maybe a way to bridge the two ideas. I have to say, I'm with you, me here about The benefits of specialization, the benefits of dedication, but maybe marrying this idea of the benefits of specialization and dedication and focus with what you have in mind, Christina, is that there's not a neat one-to-one relationship between the skills that matter on your job Absolutely. and other things that you can be good at. Mm-hmm. So I love the communication skills that played a big role in your previous story, Christina, because that was sort of one of the gateways that allowed you mm. to connect two things that seem completely unconnected. Mm-hmm. Our colleague, Joe Fuller, who's looked at the job market in the US, often talks about examples how people who are sort of seem stuck in their career, say maybe you worked in a coal mine all of your life. And then you think, okay, now, coal is at its end. What else is there that you could possibly do? There's no version of coal mining that will ever be available to you. But then it turns out, oh my God, you are really fantastic at operating heavy machinery. You have a very heightened sense of danger because you used to work in a very dangerous job. And so now we can start thinking about where else in the economy do these skills matter?
0: I think that's true. And then the other thing I would point to is the work that Clay Chris and his colleagues did around the innovator's DNA and the idea of associative thinking as one of the core ways to find innovation. Mm-hmm. It's not inventing new things. It's literally taking diagonal ideas, something that you see or experience in one world and applying it in a different setting. Yep. And. The big opportunity there is, well, you got to be exposed to other worlds, and doing so in a way that's not just dabbling, but in fact is a place where you might have some sort of deep curiosity, relationship, and drive to learn and know something maybe without an economic motivation to it. Mm-hmm, Carly mm-hmm. didn't learn yeah. to code because she thought that was going to be her next career. She did it because it was interesting. Yeah, And I think that's the same thing. I, you know, I talked to some of the graduating HBS students about this book right before they graduated and one student raised her hand and said, so which hobby should I pick up in case I need to pivot jobs? And I was like, that's <laughs> yeah. literally not the point. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> one of the things I loved about the book is all of these personal cases that you mm. included stories about how people's career went back and forth between different things that they did at different points in time. I have to say, there's sort of two reactions that I had to most of the stories. The first one was just like, oh my God, it's just amazing. It's so inspiring what people do and how people make these connections. But at the same time, more often than not, I also thought, I wish I was half as talented as the people in your book. Yeah. <laughs> So if, say, you work in construction, or you work in retail, Mm -hmm. or you work as a health home aide, those are not the stories that you're telling. Should I think of portfolio lives as an opportunity for people who have many talents, who are really good at many, many things? Or is this sort of like an every person, it's more about the attitude than about the skill set?
0: So. I think this is relevant for everyone. And I give you some of these kind of over-the-top stories in the book, truly because I find them incredibly inspirational and a little bit hard to believe. You're like, how do you exist? But also because I think they can spur that reflection of like, okay, what part of me might resonate with this? And I look... At my mother, who has been a secretary her entire career, linear in that way, same skill set. She's jumped around from one company to another. But she has all of these other pieces of her. She sings in the church choir. She cross stitches. She bakes and decorates cakes. She loves genealogy. And I think in her mind, those are all like maybe silly hobbies that she had once upon a time or things in her younger years But as I was working on the book launch, I was trying to come up with things that I could do to help maybe get the word out, build out some of my influencer mailings. I thought, well, what if I did some cross-stitched quotes from the book? What if we designed some like little samplers that we could include? Mm. And she said, oh, I could do that. I can design those. Mm. She made me 50 of these In like a week and ended up being one of my like biggest marketing tools. And I don't think she would show up in anyone's view as like the most multi-talented person you've ever come across. And yet she has all these other things that she loves, skills, communities that she becomes connected to as a result of those things. And that if she includes them in how she sees herself how she allocates her time, and what she offers up as something that she can contribute. She's a much bigger, broader, three-dimensional person than just Mm -hmm. a lifelong administrative assistant.
3: Yeah. Is it, in a way, the commercialization of everything? You know, I'm in a church choir, but I'm also thinking about, oh my God, if my other job somehow goes away, maybe... I could be an artist.
0: I certainly chafe at the idea of like monetize all the things. What I mean it by is simply right now you make a life. You monetize your time in certain ways. And that is a piece of who you are. And you might have various relationships to your work depending on where you are in life. Maybe you are someone who really identifies with your work because you are incredibly ambitious and have great aspirations. Mm -hmm. And maybe you're someone who just has a good enough job, and those are both completely valid relationships with work. Mm. Whatever that is, though, that's only a piece of you. You have all these other pieces, and if and when your life changes, and it will, you will go through these different seasons, you can and should re-examine both how you monetize your time and what that relationship to work is, and also what else you might bring in to the table.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess I have two substantive things to say and then one cheeky thing to say, which is the substantive <laughs> things to say. I'm reminded of conversations we've had on this podcast over the last couple of months, one with Kathleen McGinn, mm-hmm. where we talked about retirement mm-hmm. and this idea of investing in these avocations and being something more. And her point was that in some sense, women do that much better than men because they don't know how to develop these avocations. So your retirement is obviously a very serious juncture where things change. Mm -hmm. And that was all about developing this fuller sense of who you are besides just a job. And then the second conversation I'm reminded of is just this most recent conversation with Jill Avery about personal branding, where we take this commercial frame on the world and we apply it to ourselves. In her case, like, how do you think about brand? And it's both wonderful because it's so powerful because diversification has this resonance But then Felix is like, well, wait a second, but aren't you just putting a commercial monetary frame on the things that bring us joy? Mm -hmm. But then my cheeky comment is, is like an alternative title for this book, Lean Out?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe a little bit. That's a good one. (laughs) I'm being a little (laughs) serious.
1: Lean In was, I don't know when, 15 years ago, maybe? Mm -hmm. But is part of what you're saying, Lean Out?
0: If that is what you want, yes. It is no surprise to me. I came... To the most robust version of this model, when I was on the brink of having my first child, Uh Mm -hmm. I'd been an entrepreneur for a decade, and in very clear terms, I was a workaholic, (laughs) and and I loved what I was doing. And it wasn't just this companies I was building. I always had side hustles. I was speaking. I was a columnist for Forbes. I was starting a master's degree in computer science just for fun, not because of anything. Just it sounded fun and. And I worked all the time by choice. And then my husband and I were ready to have a kid. And I thought, this is not consistent with how I want to show up as a parent to young children. Mm -hmm. These two ways of existing are not compatible. And I need to rethink what role work has in my life right now. And I will tell you, the Sheryl Sandberg lean-in narrative is... Don't step away from that job prematurely, have that baby and get right back in. Accept the promotion, like keep going, right? Like that's exactly what we were told. And I didn't want that. I wanted a different relationship to work for this chapter of my life. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. lean out is the cheeky version of this.
2: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down.
0: So, Felix, for our second topic, you sent around a couple of articles, one pointing to the fact that workers are happier than they've been in decades, and yet a separate one pointing out that productivity (laughs) is falling for the second straight quarter. So, make this make sense.
3: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think I'm going to need your help. So. It's just a fascinating set of statistics, both really impressive. On the one hand, we all know the job market is really hot at this point in time. Businesses created more than 300,000 jobs in May alone, one and a half million jobs this past year. So on the one hand, things seem to be going incredibly well. And then you look at gross domestic income, so the sum of wages and profits, and it's falling. So somehow, yes, there's more jobs and people spend more time at work, but how that work gets translated into products and services that we sell, there seems to be a leaky bucket. And of course, the connection is that productivity at the same time is falling. And there's basically three ideas why that might happen. One is, businesses got so scared that they wouldn't get enough workers at the end of the pandemic. And so they trained many more people than they really needed and are not so willing to let go of people, even though maybe we are in a recession, maybe we're not. Maybe the decline in productivity has something to do with working from home. The concerns that you hear among many CEOs and executives that somehow productivity will take a hit eventually. Maybe that's in the data. And then certainly third, there's no trace of AI making things much better, at least at this point in time. And so while the labor market is hot, people spend a lot of time at work don't seem to be doing quite as much when they are at work. And then you look at job satisfaction and it's an amazing story. I could almost not believe the numbers. In 2010, about 42% of workers said that they were really satisfied at work. And then over the next 12 years, so up to 2022, that increases by 20 percentage points. So 62% of workers now say that they're fully satisfied at work. And in that statistic, you don't see COVID at all. It's basically a straight line from the end of the Great Recession to today. And so I thought, oh my God, I'm completely confused. <laughs> what on earth is going on here? And I'm basically here to ask you, what do you think? <laughs> it is really super interesting,
1: Felix. I think of it as kind of in some sense, two different phenomenon. Okay, You're right. The worker happiness numbers are incredible. And it's not just compensation. It's their freedom to do things. It's the rules that they're under. It's a lot of different margins on which they feel a lot happier. Yeah. Yeah. So I think of that, in some sense, as a relatively shorter run phenomenon. And by that, I mean, the labor markets have been amazing for the last five years and workers are switching and switchers are way happier, (laughs) it turns Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Then the productivity phenomenon, I think, is actually this very long run phenomenon that we're observing, which is worker productivity and productivity growth has been slow for A long time now, (laughs) not just a couple of quarters. It's like 10 or 15 years. It's been relatively low productivity. So that I think is a different phenomenon. And the question really is, well, wait a second. In the next couple of years, there'll be a recession. I think worker satisfaction will come down. And the real question is, will productivity take off? And that's the thing that I think that really matters for our economic growth. And there we don't know yet. As you said, mm-hmm. there are some short-run theories about why productivity is low. I think labor hoarding makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But the longer-run question is, why haven't the technological innovations of the last 15 years translated into greater productivity growth? And there, I think, there's even two different schools of thought. One is, it's because there ain't nothing left to figure out. <laughs> We've reached <laughs> the limits of our knowledge. Yeah. And then the second one is, no, 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 you don't understand. There's just huge lags. Yeah, This stuff is going to be massive, including artificial intelligence, maybe most especially artificial intelligence. You just don't see it yet. So there is this thing in the productivity literature, which is like, for a long time, nothing looks like it's happening or it's like low and then boom. And so maybe that's what's going to happen next.
3: So I don't know. That's how I think about it. Mm. So that's interesting to me here. I agree we had low productivity growth for a very long time, so 1%, 2%. And you think low growth rates and now a decline in productivity, that's basically not qualitatively different. It's not a new story. It's just that it's been 1%, 2%, and then you know maybe it falls by a percent or two. Right. The puzzle you're pointing to is, well,
1: then why are people so darn happy? And I think the answer is, <laughs> well, because labor markets shifted in their direction. Yeah. Because we're at the tail end of a very long expansion that has been really good for workers where they've learned how to switch because of the pandemic. Yeah. I guess that's the way I would try to knit it together. Okay. What do you think, Christina?
0: The thing that popped out to me as I read these articles back to back, there was a line in one of them that mentioned, you know, rising productivity is what allows companies to raise wages without raising prices and fueling inflation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that hit something off for me because one of the things that I tracked very diligently in my book was around the gap between productivity and wage growth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that over the last 40, 45 years, productivity is up over 60% net productivity, while hourly pay net of inflation is up 17.5%. And so for several decades, the productivity increases have accrued to the bottom line, accrued to the owners of these companies and has not been completely reflected in the wage growth for workers. And so as I read some of these comments on the happiness of workers now and whether or not this is quiet quitting or phone it in Mondays or whatever that phrase was, part of me has to think there's a little bit of like, okay, well, if we're not going to see Any of that increase in productivity hit our bottom line, then maybe I should enjoy my job as it is. Maybe I should take advantage of the fact that I can run a load of laundry in between a couple of meetings Mm -hmm. as I'm working from home. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think I disagree with that argument. So I guess maybe my pushback is if companies want to see a giant jolt in productivity, maybe they should share some of that progress with the workers that are fueling it.
3: It's certainly consistent with looking at what are the sources of satisfaction. So why did it go up so much? The one that really matter are work-life balance. Not in your sense, Christina, in the Hmm. old-fashioned sense of (laughs) work-life balance. And then the second is workload, that people are pretty happy with their workload. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's always this jump towards, oh, maybe people are slacking off. They're not really trying very hard. But I think trying harder... Typically has a minimal impact on overall productivity to really get productivity growth going. We need to do things differently. I think the premise of people who are optimistic about AI as sort of a process revolution that will change things dramatically. This is all about not you and I spending more time at work and trying (laughs) even harder than we already do. This is about doing things in novel ways. Right. So the one reason why I'm maybe a little more nervous than you, here about the decline is if hybrid work arrangements somehow don't give us quite the productivity, there are novel ways that make us more productive and then there are novel ways that maybe lead to coordination failures that we wouldn't have had in an earlier time. So let me make sure I understand what you're
1: saying, Felix, that the hybrid work won't let us realize the full benefits of this technological change? Is that what you have in mind?
3: Or that hybrid work shifts work in the way we collaborate in a way that it just takes us more hours to produce the same output. Right. Like it we slows, down the, yeah, it of, slows yeah, down the cycle time. It slows down the Decision-making.
1: Right. But I think you're right, Felix, to highlight the magical nature of what we consider to be total factor productivity growth. It has to be something <laughs> that is not just like oh, I learned a new trick for doing something. Yes, that's not going to do it. (laughs) The real things that matter are these things that we call general purpose technologies. They both make it so that you are 20% more productive at your job, which is amazing, (laughs) period, end of sentence. But then it makes the whole process of coming up with new ideas better. Mm -hmm. That is the promise of AI. The promise of AI is... It's both going to make it so that the person who is a lawyer or a writer who needs the first draft of their paper, they're going to do it super fast because GPT is going to give it to them. And that's going to be a massive increase in their productivity. But then it unleashes new levels of creativity in that process. Now we're talking about really remarkable total factor productivity growth that drove the post-war era. That was the decade of the mid-90s to early 2000s. That's the promise of what can come Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but will it or not i don't know yeah but it certainly hasn't happened so far and a lot of (laughs) things that are quote-unquote ai have been around for the last 10 years yeah lots of data lots of computing power it's really a bet right now about how that pays off and the promise is amazing because if you add two percent to gdp growth which sounds kind of small but is actually just massive (laughs) Mm. that can just change everything so that's what we haven't yet seen and we don't know
0: I hear you that the AI technology has been around for 10 plus years, but I think what has been missing up to this point that feels like such a a revolution with ChatGPT is the UX layer that makes it accessible to Mm -hmm. non-technologists. I have to agree with you that there's something about the latest introduction of AI and the ways that we're seeing it being plugged into the day-to-day work is providing access to a larger body of workers that I have to imagine it's going to revolutionize how we do our work mm-hmm. in a way that the last 10 years of big data and large number crunching hasn't. Yeah. The question there is just how long it takes to kind of reorganize the world and who you have in which roles after that great reshuffling happens. Because I right. have to imagine that all of these white-collar industries that maybe haven't seen as much disruption are going to really see a great reshuffling as we figure out maybe you don't need that long tail of accountants or legal assistance to write the drafts in the same way we don't need the steno pool that we used to have on admin support.
1: Mm -hmm. I think the other piece of this Felix that I'm struck by is this period where happiness goes up in the workplace by a lot is also the period of the diffusion of a lot of technology in the workplace, phones and laptops and lots of things. And we have this very ambivalent relationship with technology, which is a lot of us hate it and struggle with it. But maybe what it did is not show up in productivity numbers, but it just created lots of flexibility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so does it show up in productivity? Maybe not, but does it make people happy? Mm -hmm. Maybe yes. That's an interesting, yeah. That's another way to understand it, which is, you know what, I get my laptop and I can be just as productive at home as I can be at work. I can be productive in the park. I love it and I do it. Yeah. And it is technology. It's just not really increasing my productivity. It's just making me happier because I'm flexible.
3: Yeah, That's interesting. It's also fascinating because you can look at the data and you can say, well, we're doing better than we used to, but it's still 40% of people who are not that satisfied. Right. The <laughs> 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 then think oh, about right. what could businesses do To catch up with the businesses that have happier workers. And the one thing that stood out for me, and you mentioned it earlier, Christina, is the role of task variety, Mm -hmm. when people can do different things. And there's sort of a fascinating example. I don't know if you followed the rankings very closely, but... Cisco has been on a remarkable run Hmm. as being named year after year as the best company to work for. Hmm. And when you think, oh my God, it's not exactly the brand that most people would find incredibly aspirational. It's not products that are incredibly sexy. What on earth are they doing? And one of the really Interesting HR practices that always completely fascinated me is they have many ways inside the organization. To swap jobs. So, for instance, they have a 20% program where, say, you're an engineer and you're curious about, I don't know, social marketing. And then you get to spend 20% of your time in social marketing while you're working 80% as an engineer. So, you get to know a completely different part of Cisco. There's a version of this where you literally swap jobs with someone for six months just to figure out this choice that i made maybe 10 15 20 years ago so this goes back i think Mm -hmm. to the conversation we had earlier it's interesting when you think about it when you do something trivial like buying a fridge you have consumer research you have performance data and then you make these really big decisions like what's your career You know nothing, right? Uh So you just go with your gut and maybe you get it right and maybe you don't get it right. And so both this task variety and maybe the happy workers at Cisco say creating a little bit of Maybe I'll call it a portfolio life from now on inside (laughs) organizations Mm -hmm. also might actually be a really great way to get people more engaged.
0: That's fascinating because one of the things is I've been talking to companies about the book is how can they be supportive of these ideas without basically telling everyone it's okay to go have a side hustle. And so one of the things that we've talked in great length about is exactly this, Felix, this idea of can you offer someone on your team a rotation or a secondment or a growth project that gives them access to mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. other part of their portfolio they're curious about, but in a way that they can do it within your organization that not only keeps them engaged, but also gives you talent flexibility if you need to rebalance your team based off of new priorities or new needs.
1: I love this point about task variety, Felix. I just think it makes a ton of sense, which is in some sense, that's what I've always loved about academia is the ability to do different things. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the great things about our job, but also in the longer sweep of history in cognitive jobs where you spend a lot of time and you want intellectual stimulation, repetition doesn't work. You're attracting people who are really thoughtful and smart and they want to apply their brains and then you tell them do the same thing. And so- There is obviously this tension again, Christina, between like focus and diversification. (laughs) But you know, the employers who figure that out really stand to benefit. That's got to be a huge piece
3: of the puzzle. What's that famous expression all roads lead to portfolio lives? (laughs) Exactly. So, Christina, you brought recommendations.
0: I did. I've got two for you this time, since I realized the rules don't apply. (laughs) Well, actually, the rules
3: mostly don't apply to one person. (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) I'm with you, Christina. Go for it. Break the rules. So, my
0: first one is a TV show. Mm. I have recently gone down the rabbit hole of a show called The Diplomat. Oh, it stars Kerry yes. Russell, and I am still mourning the end of the Americans years ago. I think the showrunner used to work on The West Wing, so it's got a little bit of that flavor in there. But there's a lot of the Americans that I love kind of in there. It's fantastic. There's only eight episodes, so you can't binge them all at once. But fantastic show. Highly recommend. And while you're watching it, here's my other recommendation. I have fallen in love with a caramel cheese popcorn mix from (laughs) Cretor's. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that brand right. C-R-E-T-O-R-S. I found it at the supermarket. Mm. It is delicious, salty, sweet. You eat the whole bag. You cannot stop.
3: Yeah, you can binge on that. (laughs) It is (laughs)
0: 1,000% my recommendation. Nice. I
3: love that. That's recommendations with a theme. That's new. (laughs) Felix, what did you bring? I can add a culinary recommendation. I don't know if you had firehook crackers. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. The best tasting, crunchiest crackers you could possibly imagine. And it's a very interesting story, actually. The person who founded it, Pierre Abushkara, his family's Lebanese and his mom was a pastry chef in Lebanon. And then eventually they moved via Greece to the United States. He was a private banker for a little while. <laughs> and then in 1992, so quite some time ago, he started this company, Firehook. And it's basically the iron instruments that traditional bakers would use to take loaves out of the fire. But I have to say, there are many, many different flavors. Multigrain flax is maybe my favorite. But I can't imagine that you don't find one that you really love also.
0: A private banker turned baker. I love it. (laughs) I just (laughs) saw
3: them. They're like these baked crackers. They're baked, yes. Yeah, they look great. They're really thin and they're a little uneven shaped also, but just so delicious. Mm. Well, you two have inspired
1: me that I'm going to go full on food for my recommendations, which (laughs) is first... I had a lovely moment at reunions at HBS where I was giving a talk and a woman came up to me about the podcast and was saying that she loved it when I gave recommendations about kids. So I first would like to recommend Nerds Gummy Clusters. So Nerds is one of the great candies, Mm -hmm. but you would think, how could you innovate on Nerds? And then two years ago, they just took it to a whole new level and they took the Nerds and they combined it with like a gummy bear and they made Nerd Gummy Clusters. It is so next level, you will not believe it. And then my other recommendation is more adult for food, which is kind of a flavor profile, which I just think is amazing, which is Tres Leches Cakes, which is basically a sponge cake that's like soaked in different kinds of milk. Man, that consistency, it's not really caramelly like you were going for, Christina, but I just don't know. That condensed milk... I used to eat that out of the can when I was a kid. This brings (laughs) back so many fond memories. So trace Leches Cakes, anytime you have an option to try it,
3: go for it with Nerds Gummy (laughs) Cluster. Excellent. And this was it for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.